Last in a series we've been in over the last few weeks, a series that we've called All In. And it's a series where we have looked together at some verses in the book of Acts, chapter 2, from 42 through to 47, at this description we find there, this snapshot of the first Christian church and how they were and what they were devoted to or in what they, ways they were all in. And, and so we've seen over the last weeks that the early church were all in when it came to reading and understanding and wanting to apply Scripture in their lives. They were all in when it came to praying, individually and corporately. They were all in when it came to their commitment to communion and what that meant for them, past, present, and future hope because of the work of Jesus Christ. We've seen that they were all in when it came to their commitment to one another, to the fellowship as a church. And these things that we've looked at have been, throughout history, hallmarks of the Christian church. That they weren't just there for those first believers. Those things have been things that throughout the ages, Christian churches have devoted themselves to and have been known for. They're evidences of lives and communities which have been transformed by the grace of God. And as a result of meeting with Him, as a result of finding hope and life and freedom in the person and work of Jesus, they've given themselves to these things. And there's one more thing that we see in Acts 2 amongst this early church that once again has always been a hallmark of the church. And that is generosity. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Now generosity, as I'm sure you're aware, comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes and forms. We can be generous in lots of ways. We can be generous with our time. We can be generous with our skills and how we serve others. There are all kinds of ways in which this is, oh no, it's not died. It's still here. We'll find it. We'll see how that goes. I want to talk specifically today about what we see in Acts 2, though, and that is actually generosity when it comes to our finances and our possessions, a material generosity. And it's something we don't talk about very often as a church. I think it's actually something that, that on the whole, white Western people find quite awkward to talk about. And something I don't think we're sometimes very good at talking about. But the Bible is far from silent on the subject. And so if we want to be faithful to Scripture, then we need to talk about it. And I'm aware that there'll be a range of backgrounds, experiences, and expectations in this room when it comes to the subject of material generosity. And that's why we're looking at it and talking about it because we want Scripture to be our benchmark as a church community, don't we? Uh, we've, we've all got a range of experiences and expectations because of our backgrounds and our upbringings and various things we've heard. 
today I want us to say, what, what does the Bible say about this? And in turn, how does that inform the way we should live? Now, lots of people, when it comes to talking about money in church, assume that there is a, an amount or a percentage that you should give if you're a Christian. Some, particularly those who've grown up in certain streams of church, have heard as they've grown up about tithing or giving 10% of your income to the church. Others, depending on the church tradition they've been, will have heard about tithes and offerings, giving 10% regularly and then on top of that giving other spontaneous offerings. Others still hear may be completely freaked out that we're talking about money at all. (laughs) And perhaps think the notion of giving away 10% or any income of of yours to the church is possibly all a bit much. Now, I want to say up front, I'm not going to tell you what you should give. I don't believe it's my place to give you a figure or a percentage that you should give to the church. But I hope that you'll see as we spend some time looking at God's Word today that I do believe, if you're a Christian, that you should give. And you should give generously. And I think I'm on really safe ground saying that. Before we get into the Acts passage and and look at what the early church did, I want to give a bit of context. I want us to take a step back briefly and just look at the idea of tithing or giving a 10% or a tithe and where that came from. Because it is a thoroughly biblical idea. I'm not going to tell you a percentage, but the concept is we'll get there. So the idea of setting aside a portion of your income started right at the beginning. If you realize that, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. And Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel, brought portions of their flocks and livestock before the Lord as an offering. The idea was to offer this to honor God and to give thanks to him for his provision for them. They brought their crops and their livestock as an offering right back in Genesis 4. And God's people continued to do this all the way through. Even throughout their slavery in Egypt, the people of God continued to offer the first fruits to God. And after God freed them from Egyptian captivity, whilst they were wandering in the wilderness, they continued to do it. And God gave them, whilst they were in the wilderness, laws through Moses. These laws were given to set God's people apart from the rest of the nations, to mark them out as different, as unique amongst all the peoples on the earth, as his people and God gave them instructions on giving. The idea of offering first fruits that had always been with them grew into teaching about a tithe. And the Israelites gave a a tenth or a tithe of their seed and fruit and flocks to God in worship. You can read about it. We're not going to get into all the passages today. This is a very quick overview. But if you 
You can write these down if you want, or you can ask me for the references later. But you can read about this tithe in Leviticus 27, in Deuteronomy 14, in 2 Chronicles 31, and in Nehemiah 13. It's very clear God instructed his people to do it, and they did it. The practice of tithing continued then throughout Israel's history. In time, God established with his people priests and the temple as a place to worship. But with that, he also instructed his people to bring into the temple their tithes as an act of worship. And on top of that, tithes were also given to support the temple running costs and the priests who served there. And you can read about that in Numbers 18 and Nehemiah 10. And though the word tithe means tenth, when you actually look at what they gave and with what frequency God instructed them to give, it's reckoned that the Israelites actually gave closer to 20% a year than 10. Now, some people still teach that Christians should tithe today. And I, I have sympathy with that teaching, but I don't personally agree. I'm going to explain why in a moment. But I want you to hear this. Whilst I don't agree, I'm not going to fall out with anyone over it, right? Because whilst I don't think we're commanded to tithe today, I do think we're called to give. And the principles and reasons for tithing continue as really solid principles for giving and for generosity. Because tithing was a way of thanking God for his provision, of honoring him for his provision, a way of remembering that actually everything belonged to God and that in his kindness he had blessed us and so we give a portion back to him as a way of thanking him for what we've received. Tithing was a way of honoring God, of, of saying to him, God, before anyone or anything else, Lord, you come first. And so the first thing I want to do with what I have, the first thing I want to do with my resources, with my money, what I have at my disposal, is to offer it to you as an act of worship and to say, God, you're first. And tithing is a way of declaring your trust in God to provide. Because if you think money is going to secure you, you'll find it hard to give away. But if you remember that it's God who provides and that you're trusting him, not the security of your job or the stability of your bank balance or whatever else it might be to provide, then actually giving it away is a great statement and reminder of saying, God, I'm not trusting that to secure me. I'm trusting you. Now, all that said, the main reason that I don't think tithing is required of Christians today is that we don't find it instructed of Christians anywhere in the New Testament. Jesus talks about tithing, but he's talking into the tradition of the day and the context in which he's in. But the New Testament church is never instructed to tithe. But they certainly gave and gave generously. And so we're going to read together the verses we've read over these last few weeks from Acts 2, 42 to 47. Uh, and then soon after that, we're going to jump into Acts chapter 4. 
37, uh, no, 32 to 37. Uh, and then we're going to carry on picking through some other passages as we go. So let's open up at Acts 2. If you've got a Bible, please do open it or turn it on, however you want to read that. Um, it will be on the screen if you don't have one, but I would always encourage you, if you've got a Bible, open it up for yourself. So we read this from Acts 2:42 onwards. They devoted themselves, that is the early church, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple courts together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Did you notice it? Incredible, radical generosity amongst this people. All who believed were together and had all things in common... And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's extraordinary, isn't it? That's not a normal way for people to behave. Or maybe it is. In my experience, that's not a normal way for people to behave. And this isn't a one-off passage. We read two chapters later in, Luke, uh, in Acts chapter 4. Luke expands on this. He writes about it again for us so to make sure we don't miss it. We read from Acts 4, 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And this is interesting. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now these first Christians were Jews. They would have been used to the idea of tithing. It's what they would always have done. In fact, this guy, Simon, was a Levite. He was a priest in the temple who actually would have been in receipt of some of the tithes that were given. That's how he earned a living, effectively. But they didn't tithe. (laughs) That's not what we see them do. It, It doesn't say... They were all together and they all committed to giving 10% of their income so there was no needy among them. That's not what we read. Instead, it says, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. 
Some sold land and property and gave the money to the apostles, the leaders who distributed the funds where there was need. They gave with such incredible generosity that there was no needy amongst them. Those who had much shared with those who had little, so that no one was without. This is amazing, isn't it? Like, this, this is amazing. <laughs> Incredible, open-handed generosity and sharing. Now, we do need to notice this. It, it wasn't that none of them owned anything. This wasn't the abolition of personal property. It, it, it wasn't that this was just all a kind of collective pool of stuff, like people became Christians and no one owned anything personally anymore. It was all just kind of in the middle and everyone went for it. It was that they weren't precious or possessive about their things, that they were moved in some way to this generosity that led them to a point that though it was theirs, they said, I, I, I'm not holding this to myself. You've got need. I meet your need. I'm not hoarding this as my own. I could sell this land. I could sell this property. And this keeps cutting out, doesn't it? Maddie, can I grab that one? I'm just going to go with this. Seems more consistent. Cool. Incredible generosity. If someone needed it, then they were happy for them to use it or even have it. This is beyond tithing. The same heart principles underlie what was going on here, but this is beyond tithing. They weren't responding to a rule or a law. They weren't primarily giving because they were instructed to, but they were giving because their hearts were moved by the grace of God to do so. They gave incredibly generously to meet individual need within the church community. Like stunning generosity. They entrusted the leaders to faithfully distribute and direct resources to where there was need. But what else did they give to? As we continue to look at the church in the New Testament, we see that they didn't just give in this way to meet individual need within the church community. There were other things they gave to. Which you kind of think, gosh, like that's, that's already incredible generosity. You mean they gave to other stuff too? Oh, yeah. As we look at the church in the New Testament, we see that they also gave to support other churches in other places where there was need. See, as more church communities were established in different places, the apostles, the leaders, took collections in order to cover the needs of other congregations where there was material need. One example, we see Paul writing to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 to 3, we read this. Now concerning the collection for the saints, this is something that he's writing to them about that they already know is going on. It says, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so he's written to some other churches about this, so you also are to do. He's writing to them about it now. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up 
as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. He's like, plan for it in advance, like as you are able to, put some money aside so that when I come to you, we're not going to try and take a special offering then, you're, you're ready to give. Now, when I come, and then he says, and when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So Paul's going to come. There are going to be a couple of people from the Corinthian church who are trusted people who aren't going to run off with the money. But they're accredited, trustworthy people who will take this offering to the church in Jerusalem where there is need. Amazing. When the church in Jerusalem was suffering from famine and persecution, the church in Antioch, so somewhere else, that was Corinth at a different time. Now we read about Antioch in Acts chapter 11. The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. They heard that this church in Judea was in need. There was famine there. There was hardship there was intense persecution. And the hearts of these Christians welled up in generosity that they sent gifts to support the church in Judea. On another time, churches in Macedonia and Achaia did likewise. We read in Romans 15. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. Where from? From Macedonia. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. The early church met need locally, and they also gave generously to need in other church communities elsewhere. And we have the joy here of being meaningfully connected to churches all around the world through partnership with Advance. And that means we're able to give in this way too. And that excites me because whether we feel it or not with the cost of living crunch and all of the other things that we're reading about, on a global scheme, we are unbelievably wealthy. And we have the privilege of being able to partner with brothers and sisters in other parts of the globe. Just as out of routine, we give 5% of our church as a church, as a 5% of our income as a church to advance, which in part is given to distribute where there is need. Exactly like this. That's a bit like Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians. Like set aside an amount, kind of be prepared for it. Make this a regular habit. Be thorough and diligent in it. But then there was spontaneous giving we read about, wasn't there? You know, in Acts 11, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to do it. They spontaneously, they heard of the need. We, we need to meet that. And we've had the privilege of doing that too in the last couple of years. We've given fairly large lump sums as a church community over the last couple of years to help meet need in the church in Nepal and India and in Madagascar. It's a real privilege and something we're called to as the people of God. They also gave need to help those gave to help those in need outside of the church. See, 
the church first gave to provide for and meet needs within their church community to the extent that there was no needy amongst them. But they also gave to meet need in the wider community amongst unbelievers. Paul's letter to the Galatian church, he writes on a couple of occasions about this, but particularly in Galatians. So in Galatians 2, we read him writing this. It says, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. It's like I was eager to ensure that we looked after those in need. And we could think, oh, that must be the ones inside the church fellowship. But then in Galatians 6, he says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, especially, not exclusively. Yeah? If you can't look after your family within the church, then there's a real problem. But the expectation we find in the New Testament is that there will be generosity here. That we will care deeply for one another especially for those within the church, but not exclusively. The expectation is that we will be generous. We're mandated to care for the poor and marginalized beyond these four walls. We need to hear that. Okay, we cannot, as a church, close our eyes and ears to what's going on in the world and where there is need, and to honestly ask how can we help? How can we play our part in pushing back darkness, in meeting need where we see it in our community? We need to continue to look for opportunities as a local church to do that. I've really provoked about that this week. I'm sure, I'm convinced that there's more we could do together in our community. And then there's one other thing they gave towards, actually. They gave, we see, to fund the mission of the church, the, the advancing of the gospel, locally and further afield. There's a, there's a kind of practical and pragmatic reality, and this is the, the like least comfortable of all of the things that the church through history have given to um, for me to talk about, because it's how I get paid. But there's a pragmatic reality to the fact that funds were needed to take care of those who'd committed themselves to the preaching of the gospel and who'd committed themselves to outreach and mission work and teaching. And in the early church, that included the disciples and then in time, the elders who were being appointed in the churches that were being planted and established all around that region. In Galatians 6, again, we find an encouragement from Paul specifically to give to this end. In Galatians 6, 6, he says that the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. In 1 Timothy 5, we find a similar exhortation. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. But this didn't just start with the early church. This wasn't 
like an idea that the apostles came up with thinking like, oh, now like, oh, we've got to find a way to kind of make ends meet. No. See, actually, if we, we look, we find in Luke's gospel a group of women who are listed as providing for, materially providing for, financially providing for the needs of Jesus and his disciples as they traveled around. And actually, Jesus had no problem with this. We saw earlier, didn't we, in tithes and offerings, that there were tithes brought as offering to God, and there were tithes brought specifically to meet the needs of the priests in the temple. And Jesus viewed it precisely the same way. In fact, when he sent out the 72 to preach the gospel, he didn't tell them to expect a salary, but we read in both Matthew 10 and Luke 10, as he sends out the 72, he tells them not to take money with them, but to expect God to provide for them through the hospitality and generosity of people as they went. So from Luke 10, we can read this, Luke 10, 4 to 7. He instructed them, do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. It's clear that the early church gave and gave generously. They gave to meet need within the local church family. They gave to support the mission of the local church and ministry. They gave locally, they gave globally, and they gave to meet the needs of those in their communities. But why did they give? It's like we've kind of read all this. They gave to all of these things. But why did they give so generously? What led them to such open-handed and big-hearted generosity. Because what we see in the early church has never been and never will be created by human effort. What we see in the early church will never be brought about through an organization or political means or fiscal policy. Acts 2 and 4 that we read at the start is not some kind of very successful early communist experiment. See, communism aspires to create the kind of equality that we read about. But it doesn't work. The forced sharing of possessions ultimately doesn't work. It leads tragically to resentful people who feel like stuff's being taken off them. And sadly, all too often, to corrupt leaders who demand it. External factors won't ever create the kind of generosity that we find in Acts 2 and 4. It can only ever be the fruit of changed hearts. In the early church, people's possessions and money were not taken from them by force or extracted by coercion. They willingly, voluntarily, gladly shared what they had to meet the needs of others for one simple reason. 
that a new heart, new life in Christ, invariably results in a wholehearted response to our Saviour. Knowing him, delighting in his grace, knowing the joy of forgiveness leads you to walk in his commands. Yeah, when, we, when we appreciate and experience the freedom that Jesus brings, when we understand the fullness of life that is ours in him, it, it leads us to want to obey him, to live for his glory. It leads us to fulfill his command of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. When he was asked, Jesus said all the law could be summed up in those two commands. Living in God's grace results in a realization that in Jesus, you're also joined to his body, the church. And you're joined to one another to such an extent that when one part hurts, when one part is in pain, then the rest knows about it. If you observe that, that Acts 11 passage we read, they heard what was going on for the church in Jerusalem and they were moved to meet the need there. It isn't about having to sell your house to provide for others. Although, you know, I know people who've done that. People who felt moved, <laughs> felt compelled to do that, to release the capital in order to meet need of others within their community. But it isn't about that. It isn't about having to sell your house or other property to provide for others. Clearly not everyone did that. Or if everybody who owned anything did that, then it wouldn't have been worth mentioning that some people did that. <laughs> but it's clear when we read the Acts passages that, that some people sold land and possessions in order to meet. Not, not everyone who had those things did that. But the believers, all of them, recognized that what they had was a gift from God. And as a result, they weren't tight-fisted with it. They saw it as resource to be used for God's glory and for the good of others as they found their delight in him and were satisfied with the love that they'd received in him that overflowed into their relationships with others. So they shared what they had, not under command or compulsion, but as a natural overflow and response to the generosity of God in their lives. They gave because their hope wasn't in stuff, it was in Jesus. They were satisfied in him. And as a result, they weren't looking for approval or value or security from anyone or anything else. They found it in him. See, the, the problem with money, and the Bible has a lot to say about money. In fact, a lot of times in Scripture, money is referred to as an idol. Mammon, as a false god. The problem with money is that it, it sets itself up as a functional saviour. 
It promises you something that it can't ever really deliver. It promises you security and comfort, but never meets that in a lasting way. It might, in some kind of temporary way, provide some kind of insulation from the hardships of this life. But it doesn't ever really truly satisfy you. There are many incredibly wealthy people who will testify to that fact. Uh, I'm trying to, I, this wasn't in my notes, but Jim Carrey is clearly a very wealthy, very famous man, has made a statement to that effect. I think. I think it was, it was either him or Bono, and I'm trying to remember which one. Bono said similar things as well, as have lots of other famous people. But I think, James is going to Google it and correct me if I'm wrong. But I think it was Jim Carrey who said, I wish that everybody could become rich and famous and have everything they ever wanted so that they'd realize it's not the answer. See, money and possessions promise something they can't ever truly deliver on that's why people are always after more because it doesn't matter how much you have you're not fully satisfied and you believe that maybe just like that thing that will do it that will tip me over the edge then I will be content but when we find our hope and comfort in Jesus (laughs) it frees us from feeling that we have to try and find it elsewhere. You see, the more that you buy into the lie that you need more stuff or more money in order to be content or fulfilled, then the reality is you'll just be more dissatisfied and more selfish. The more you buy into the lie that you need more in order to be content or fulfilled, the more you will be dissatisfied and selfish. It's true. It's an observable reality. But the more you recognize that every breath is a gift from God, the more you celebrate his generosity towards you and thank him for his grace in giving you life that you don't deserve, then the more generous and open-handed you'll be as a result. Guys, we should be the most generous people on planet Earth. Because we've seen and understood and daily celebrate the generosity of God towards us in the finished work of Jesus. See, true generosity is an overflow of gratitude. And I know for me that the the less I celebrate the generosity of God towards me, Particularly, the less I celebrate the generosity of God towards me seen most powerfully in the work of Jesus at the cross, then the more grumpy and self-centered I am. It's the way it goes. And my guess is the same is true for you. I'm more likely to become dissatisfied with where I live and the things I have and to chase after the next upgrade, the newer, bigger, faster, shinier thing, believing that in some way it might fulfill me. 
But I know the opposite is also true from experience. I know that when I daily remind myself of the generosity of God towards me, when I cultivate in my life a, an attitude of gratitude to him, that I'm far more open-handed and generous in my dealings with others and with my money and possessions. I'm more content with what I have and I'm way more willing to give it away to those who need. So I do want to encourage you to give. I do. I want to encourage you to give if you don't already do so because I think it's thoroughly biblical to do so. And if you do already give, I I do want you to consider why and how much you're giving. Is it just tradition, ticking a box? Like, oh, that's, you know, that's how I was raised. That's what we do. We give, we give 10%. That's, that's what we do. Or, or is it biblically informed, generous giving in response to the love of God? I want you to consider that. But way more than that, I want you to delight yourself in the finished work of Jesus. I do want you to give, but I don't want you to go home today going, and said, the Bible says we should give. We should be generous. Let's, let's do that. If you go away with that message, I'll be really disappointed. I will have failed this afternoon. I want you to go away determined to delight yourself more in him. I want you to go away saying, this week, I'm not looking to anyone or anything else to satisfy me. I'm looking to Jesus. I want you to go away this week with a heart that is oriented towards him that says, Lord, I am amazed at all you've done. That even this evening, as we've heard the rain pour down, Lord, we know that although it might be inconvenient to get wet and it might be noisy and make it difficult to listen to the notices, it is your incredible provision for your creation. That you're the one who makes the rain fall, that the crops might grow. I want you to go away with hearts that see him as the one who has perfectly met our needs who provides for all he has made and in the most incredible profound way has met your ultimate need in the finished work of Jesus see your biggest need is intimacy with God whether you know it or not the greatest need you have is relationship with your creator what you were made for you were made to know him you were made to relate to him you were made for intimacy with him and that's impossible apart from the work of Jesus he took your place at the cross he died in your place he was raised to life 
that we might be raised with him to new life, that we could be brought into relationship with the Father. I want you to go home thinking about that. (laughs) I want you to go home rejoicing in that. I want you to go home celebrating in that truth. Because when you do, everything else will flow from that place. It's important that we give. But it's important that we do it out of a place of gratitude to our Savior. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to respond in worship and communion.